So tonight I thought <clears throat> I would talk a bit about and the insight into anicca, impermanence. It's kind of a natural following on what I talked about last week, clinging, because the Buddha stressed so often and so frequently the, the power, the importance of really understanding, really seeing the impermanence of all phenomena, and also pointing to how that understanding can actually be liberating understanding. And there's many places where he uh, quite explicitly states that seeing the impermanence leads to the end of clinging. For example, and I think I read this at the end of the talk last week, one of a million different places, where he's talking about abandoning identity view, or Sakaya Ditti. <clears throat> and someone says, Venerable Sir, how should one know How should one see for the view of self to be abandoned? And he says, Bhikkhu, when one knows and sees the I as impermanent, the view of self is abandoned. When one knows and sees forms as impermanent, I consciousness as impermanent, I contact as impermanent, when one knows and sees whatever feeling arises with eye contact as the condition, as impermanent, then the view of self is abandoned. And he goes on, of course, through the ear and all the relations with the ear, the smell, taste, body, mind. And clearly, once identity view begins to be abandoned, clinging to all forms begins to be abandoned. Wrong view, he goes on in that same sutta to say these are the same conditions for wrong view to be abandoned. So I think, personally, I find contemplating and focusing on this insight into impermanence to be quite interesting. I like talking about it because as much as the Buddha stressed it, And when we think about it, it's not, it doesn't sound so esoteric in terms of the three uh, characteristics of existence, of impermanence, the characteristic of dukkha, the unreliability, characteristic of anatta, not self, out of control. The most uh, obvious of these, the least esoteric really, would seem to be anicca, impermanence. In some ways, at least in me, the concept, the idea of anicca isn't really that difficult to twist our conceptual mind around. Whereas as soon as we talk about anatta, you know, something kind of seizes up in many people's minds. Anicca is like, yeah, sure, I understand that. That makes sense. So why is it? Why is it that actually it's so difficult to, at least from my experience, to actively live moment to moment from the knowing of impermanence, within the knowing of impermanence, both on the macro level, you know, the level of world systems of our own life, of people we know, of events in the world, Even on that big level, we can say, sure, I know everything changes. 
but do we really live from that? All the way down to the more micro level, what I just read, you know, do you live every moment of your life recognizing that the contact that arises when the eye door and the form and consciousness come together is impermanent? And on that level, we can say, well, yeah, I don't see it. But on the bigger level, what's fascinating to me about studying impermanence is that should be obvious, you know? And yet, and yet, is that really cellularly how we relate to our experience moment to moment? You know, the Buddha says over and over, whatever is impermanent is inherently unsatisfying, you know, could not be seen as me or mine. That's often in many of the suttas, kind of the, the ultimate uh, argument he gives, you know, well, so you see that's impermanent, obviously it's unsatisfying, can't be seen as me or mine, right? And they all go, yes, Bonte. But I wonder, do we, does each of us, just something to ponder, do we actually believe that? One, do we believe that everything's impermanent? That's one thing. But the second is, do we really on a cellular level, I like to think, by the fact that if something's impermanent, it's inherently unsatisfying? Or do we like, give it you know, a nod, a conceptual nod? Yeah, I know it's unsatisfying, but <laughs> as long as it's here, I'm really going to go for it. You know? I'm going to enjoy it while it's here. And I know it's impermanent, 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 Nietzsche. You know? And you know, we're living a complete delusion that we don't really notice if this is true, look and see for yourself. What would be, and again, this is a question I'm putting out. I'm not trying to say I'm answering it for us. It's a, for me, it's a deep question. What would be the effect on my life, on my moment-to-moment stream of consciousness, on how I related to myself and life, if I truly, truly in my cells knew that everything I experience is impermanent, including me. How would I relate or would I relate to things differently? And not to take that as a a should or some conceptual answer, I should come up with, oh, if I were, you know, free of clinging, if I knew everything was impermanent, then I would be, you know, open and flowing and accepting or whatever. That's just a a lot of baloney, you know, it's just some story we're making up. But taking that as a pointing, an investigation in my moment-to-moment awareness, which is something, you know, you have the luxury to do here in this silence, in this beautiful white stillness here. You know, it's too cold to want to do anything else. So that's great. It's going to get really cold tonight and tomorrow. So that's wonderful conditions to explore. How would I relate differently? Would I relate differently if I really knew that things were impermanent? And I see, you know, in my own life how I know things change, but when something new goes wrong with my body, when someone like my parents or someone I love suddenly gets really sick, Some conditions that have been together for many, many years fall apart. Is my first response, oh, 
the conditions for supporting a healthy body have changed. That's how it is now. Not usually. I'm only speaking for myself. <laughs> Not usually. Sometimes I can get around to that, but it takes a little, uh, <laughs> a little rubbing against the grain for a while. And uh, I know I've mentioned this other times, but my, my parents in the last mm, five years have really been declining. And in the last year, another whole kind of leap and both my parents in different ways, another whole leap, and uh, also financial difficulties where they never had that. Not really difficulties, but just having to worry, which we never had that before. And it's been really interesting to watch that place when the, each new kind of shift happens where my mind just starts by the first response is, no, this isn't supposed to happen. You know, What did I do wrong? Or what did they do wrong? Or what's wrong with the system? There's definitely something wrong with the system, that we all get old and cranky and die. I mean, definitely, that wasn't figured out right. And I, I have to say, I've been happy to see over the last five years that I roll with each new thing more easily. It's like I really, oh, it's not something I did wrong. It's not that I should be able to figure it all out so that nobody suffers. It's like, duh, you know, <laughs> what do I talk about all the time? But to see how that's the first place the mind goes when something goes wrong. And that's in the big picture, which one really can't argue too hard that I'm never going to get old. One's parents won't get old. The people we love won't get sick, won't die, won't go away. Of course that's going to happen. Yet still there's such this kind of resistance to it. And that's fascinating to me as much as I've been paying attention to my mind and body process and to the processes of many, many people and to the world around me. And still there's that, that tendency to hold. I think it's really fascinating. Big picture, little picture. I mean, how do you relate to experience today? If you had a really pleasant or a really mellow or a really flowing, mindful time and it changed, was your first response, well, the conditions that led to that flowing time have fallen apart and now it's like this? Maybe. That would be nice. It's nice when that happens, isn't it? How often, though, we just, wow, what did I do wrong? It's that person who walked too close to me. That's what did it. It's I ate too many beans at lunch. I should have known better. I should have known better that if I ate the right things, I would have been able to keep my energy and my mindfulness and concentration in balance. It's my own fault for being selfish and greedy and weak, right? And then you go on a whole downward spiral. It's a trip, isn't it? The Buddha said, the search for a resting place is burning. Not to need one is cool and peaceful. And I see in my mind that this sense of really, the times we really get it, that nothing is lasting for more than a moment. There is no resting place. And that is somehow 
to the mind that likes to control and know what's going on, that is somehow deeply uncomfortable. And so I, in myself, see how there's a tendency of the mind stream just to want, this is where the clinging comes in, to want to hold on to something as steady. That sense of even though I know it's not going to last long, at least it's here now. And it, it gives me, in my experience, I know, it's just this feeling of somewhere to rest, something to hold on to, and this sense of being in the middle of an earthquake all the time, and the mind doesn't like it. So it tries to hold on. But of course, the poignancy is just that that holding on creates the friction, creates the, the sense of uh, fear of being kind of out of sync with how things are. It's actually what creates the problem. But holding on to a momentary sense of peace and ease seems like a natural response to the total unreliability of life. And yet it's this denial of impermanence that is the suffering. I One time when I was... Uh, at a teaching that His Holiness the Dalai Lama gave, a three-day teaching. He said something that's obvious about Anicca, but that struck me it has been really helpful in, in my just exploring of it. Basically, I mean, this, my words is cellularly, you know, we know intellectually that things change. We wouldn't argue about it. Cellularly, we don't really quite. We're still holding, as I said. And this is what His Holiness, he said, he said, he, we think that we really understand impermanence, but the way we tend to understand it, or the way we tend to think we're experiencing it, it's kind of long-term impermanence. We know that whatever's born is going to die. We know that in the big picture, if I'm born, I'll die. This puppy's born, it will die. This cold evening is born, it will change. We know that. But we may have the tendency to think, or not even to think, but assume this thing is born, it exists for a while, and then it goes away. And that's the place, exists for a while, that's the place that we're holding on, that we're not seeing really the radical and uh, just the radical nature of a Nietzsche. It exists for a while, shorter or longer, unchanged, then conditions change and it goes away. And His Holiness is saying, no way. Change is happening moment to moment. Nothing is existing for a while, stable, and then it goes away. And I find that really, really helpful all experience is in constant flow, constant flux, constant change. The conditions are always changing. But some part of us really, now this is me, not His Holiness, some part of us really hates this. And so maybe our, uh, our kind of a compromise, okay, I'll give you things are born and they die. I'll give you, I know that mental states change. But in this state here, Give me something to hold on to that's not changing. So maybe the times of stability get shorter. 
Maybe it goes from the 50 years of my life to the last three years. Maybe it goes from the last three years to this retreat. Maybe it goes down to this day. Maybe it goes down to this sitting. Maybe it's down to just five minutes. But still, there's some way it can be so easy to hold out, to really see that change is completely momentary. And when we don't see that, what we're often doing, and this I love to watch in my practice, in my life, is assuming permanence, you know. Like just this last month, in various groups and meetings we've been having, we're having to figure out in various organizations and configurations of people, schedule for 2006. I was just in a meeting where we were, this was only 2005, we were saying, okay, on July 12th at 4.30 Eastern Standard Time, we're going to have a conference call. And then again, you know, and someone says, I'll be in Hawaii, so that's okay for me. That's, you know, this time, and that's this time on the West Coast, and this time in the East Coast. Oh, okay, 4.30, July 12th, Wednesday. You know. And it may really happen, which is amazing, totally amazing. But how much we do that, and often without a second thought. Oh, yeah. Or... Here on retreat, the practice has been going however it's been going, and you're calling it whatever you're calling it, good, bad, boring, slogging, you know, fulfilling, whatever you're calling it. Isn't it easy when it gets in a certain way, we kind of think, well, that's how the last sitting was, and this is how the next sitting will be. I had this kind of experience, and this is going to, how it's going to keep going, bad or good. You like it or you don't, doesn't matter. You're in a really uh, difficult judging, reactive mental state. From that mental state, we project the whole rest of our life. We know it, and we do it anyway. It's amazing. If you stop for a second and thought, has this mental state been here for my whole life? You probably, hopefully, could say, no, I I don't think so. It feels like it, but I do kind of remember that time three years ago when I had a happy moment, you know, because you're in a depressive mental state. But really deep down in that moment, there are times when we really believe, but this is really how it is. This is how it's going to feel, you know. And the same when it's concentrated or happy or blissful. You know, I'm sure you've all heard Sharon when she, she talks about and I've heard this so many times, it's like I remember it better than my own stories. Um, when she was in India back when she was young and she had a period of incredible, blissful, free practice, and she just, from that, projected that's how her whole life would be. She'd imagine herself back floating down the streets of New York filled with happiness and bliss. Don't we do that? How many retreats have I done that? I always project how I'll be leaving, you know, the bodhisattva of the world and just filled with light and love. And sometimes I am and sometimes I'm not. And even if I am, it doesn't last, you know. Anyway, the sense of how easy it is to just say, oh, this is permanent. And I want to just tell a couple of stories from the time of, from the Buddha because it's not like we're the stupid ones and everyone else always got it. The Buddha really was talking to people about the necessity to see impermanence 
all the time. I just want to give a couple of examples because I love reading the suttas. So one monk came to the Buddha. His name was Asaji. And, you know, the Buddha said, uh, he said he was troubled, he was sick. And he was troubled by remorse and regret. And the Buddha said, why are you troubled? Have you done something bad? He said, no, but formerly, venerable sir, when I was ill, I could keep on tranquilizing the bodily formations that was being concentrated, but now I cannot obtain concentration. And he's really upset about this, saying, if I can't obtain concentration, it occurs to me, let me not fall away. In other words, he's really afraid he's losing the path because he cannot contain, obtain concentration, and he used to be able to, and he's sick. I mean, that's really, I can really relate to that. And the Buddha, I'm going to paraphrase because it's long, but basically he said, you know, those people who think that concentration is the essence of this practice and that failing to obtain it, you think, you know, you're falling away, that's delusion. That is not the essence of this practice. Liberation is the essence of this practice. And furthermore, and then he goes into the whole, what do you think? Is form permanent or impermanent? Right? He goes through the, the whole thing. A pleasant feeling, is it permanent or impermanent? And he goes through all the different, the pleasant feeling, a neither pleasant, a painful feeling, a painful feeling. And he just basically says, when you see this is all impermanent, then you understand. If I have a feeling that ends when the body ends, that's how you understand it. I have a feeling that ends when the body ends. So basically, if you're sick and you can't obtain concentration, you understand, yes, conditions have changed. That's how it is. You know? Basically, haven't I told you a million times everything's impermanent? And then, even more to the point, and I know you know this story, but I really like it. During the period when the Buddha was in his last illness, and, you know, it's a whole very long sutta of all those days, and Ananda, his uh, attendant, beloved of him, who had been with him for 25 years, and was taking care of the Buddha. And he knew he was dying, and they'd had conversations about it. But just at this point, when the Buddha announced for sure that he had basically decided that he was going to die, and that Ananda had missed his opportunity, you know, he'd had an opportunity some weeks prior where he could have asked the Buddha to extend his life but he missed the hints and he didn't do it. So at this point when the Buddha was basically saying, yes, now I'm going to die, and Ananda, then he said, no, don't, and he asked him three times, and the Buddha said, you know, too late. (laughs) You should have done it previously, and now I'm going to die. So they had a long talk, and then Ananda kind of slipped off, and the venerable Ananda went into his lodging and stood lamenting, leaning on the doorpost, Alas, I'm still a learner with much to do. He wasn't completely enlightened. And the teacher is passing away who was so compassionate to me. And he's basically sobbing and weeping. And of course, the Buddha, he knew, but he inquired of the monks where Ananda was, and they told him. So he said to a certain monk, Go, monk, and say to Ananda from me, Friend Ananda, the teacher summons you. And he came, and the Lord said, Enough, Ananda, do not weep and wail. Have I not already told you 
that all things that are pleasant and delightful are changeable. I mean, he's not being impatient, but just like, you know, how many times do I have to say this? All things that are pleasant and delightful are changeable, subject to separation and becoming other. So how could it be, Ananda? Since whatever is born, become, compounded, is subject to decay, how could it be that it should not pass away? For a long time, you've been in the Tathagata's presence. You know, and then he goes on and really praises Ananda. He said, you have shown loving kindness in active body, speech, and mind, beneficially, blessedly, wholeheartedly, and unstintingly. Make the effort, and in a short time you will be free of delusion. But that's really his core teaching. How can it be? Whatever is born, become, compounded, is subject to decay, subject to separation and becoming other. How can it be that it should not pass away? And I find it a little heartening, heartening in terms of, you know, we're not so lost, that even Ananda is quite stricken with grief at the loss, the coming loss. It hasn't even happened yet. And that's also interesting of his beloved teacher, that the Buddha is constantly having to remind people of the radical, radical nature of impermanence because we keep getting lost in that, not really seeing it. We keep assuming permanence. I have a friend who is quite wise, and at one, one period a few years ago, gone through a very difficult period. And then at this period, was very happy. And we were just talking somewhere. He said, you know, I wonder. I'm so happy. I wonder how it will change. Just very, because it's true. It will, it did. And then it changes again. We relate very differently, don't we? If we have that cellular understanding, I'm really happy. I wonder how it will change. I'm really having a hard time right now. There's a lot of suffering around in people I know. How's that going to change? And it gives us a real flexibility when we're not holding to something should be a certain way to actually respond the circumstances as they are, to see them clearly, and that's the point. Impermanence isn't fearful or scary, it's just how it is. And when that's our experience, that's what we see, that's what we know, then there's that living in harmony with how things are. We quit feeling like we're, you know, quit um, sandpaper going against the grain. One friend said to me, you see, I wrote down what she said, She's done many years of practice. and This is in her retreat. She says, oh, all these years of practice. I always thought, I get it. Everything around is always changing. But suddenly, she said, I see, oh, I'm part of that. <laughs> I'm also in constant change and constant ebb and flow. And that's quite, that's a significant piece. And when we really, in a moment, can have just that cellular knowing, it really 
we let go of all ideas and should be and assuming permanence, and we're really right there for whatever's happening. This other friend, I think I've told this before, but maybe not here. A friend who I haven't seen him for quite some years. He's a, he used to come and sit with us in, in uh, Yucca Valley. At that time, I thought of him as uh, somewhat elderly. I don't know. He's probably not that old. He's a, a farmer from the Midwest, a kind of you know, a, a hard physical life. And he would come uh, every year and sit with us. And then one, he didn't come for a couple of years. And then the next year he showed up and he'd had uh, a very, uh, I don't think he'd had a heart attack, but he had very uh, severe heart problems and he'd had to have open heart surgery. And he said he had to have one heart valve replaced. They replaced it, I guess, with the heart valve from a pig. This is what he said. And then he had a whole lot of jokes about stopping when he came to cornfields and oinking and stuff like that. But that was an aside. That's kind of the kind of guy he was. <laughs> but he was describing. He also was someone who felt that he's very devoted to practice, but he felt that he never had any concentration. He felt that he was never getting anywhere. He never had good states. He never was continuous with mindful. And these are what he thought. Certainly not someone who's like, I'm an ace yogi, you know, but totally dedicated. And he said, when he came back, he was telling us about his experience, his surgery. And he said, after the surgery, it seemed to go well. And he woke up in, um, what do you call it, intensive care, right? With, you know, kind of hooked up to, to machines from every orifice in his heart and all these machines going on, you know. And it seemed fine at first. But then something started going wrong, you know, and how the machines start beeping and making noise and the, the little lines start, I don't know, either go wild or they go flat, whichever was bad, summer anyway. And, and he got it that something really serious was going wrong. And at first he said, his mind is, oh my God, I don't want to die. I don't. And then the next thought was, if this is your last breath, let's be here for it. And he just felt his breath and passed out and woke up, and obviously then he was okay. But he said, I know now, you know, something was happening in this meditation. That's really kind of the fruit of it. Okay, what's really happening now? Let's be here for this breath. Quite lovely. But how is it? And this is also interesting to me, that we keep, I keep, (laughs) maybe you too, keep getting um, as if it were fooled again, pulled back in somehow to relating to, reacting to experience as if it's betrayed me by changing or not understanding why I'm suffering, you know. This is the Buddha again. I quite like this sutta. He's talking about agitation. How is there agitation due to clinging? And he goes on, an unawakened person who regards material form as self or self as possessing material form or material form as in-self, or self as in-material form. 
Those are like the four different ways that by clinging we uh, grow personality view. Anyway, the point is we think we're form. This material form of his changes and becomes otherwise. When the change and be, with the change and becoming otherwise of that material form, his consciousness becomes preoccupied with the change of material form. Agitated mental states born of preoccupation with the change of material form arise and remain obsessing his mind. Because his mind is obsessed, he is anxious, distressed, and concerned. And due to clinging, he becomes agitated. Can any of you relate to that? (laughs) Due to change in material form, our own or others, our mind becomes preoccupied. Consciousness becomes preoccupied, and the mind becomes agitated and obsessed. And of course, he doesn't stop with material form. Feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant or unpleasant. Just a pleasant feeling changes. Does your consciousness ever become preoccupied with that change? Obsessed? Agitated? Perception, mental formations, emotions, states of mind, and consciousness, the five khandhas. And that is really, I think, a huge... I I love this sutta because I can really relate it very immediately to my experience, all of it. An emotion we have changes, and we somehow thought it was me. We become obsessed. We become preoccupied with that change, and our mind gets agitated. We suffer, right? Feeling tone, consciousness, definitely form. I mean, we can't miss that one. And it doesn't even just have to be sick, does it? You could just be having a bad hair day and get obsessed with it, or a no-hair day for some of you. (laughs) Why did I ever shave my head? That was insane. Non-agitation through non-clinging is, of course, just the reverse. We don't get agitated when these things change. So these things are happening really often and very subtly. There's so much, you know, how often is there form or a memory of form in the past? Or a wishing form would be such and such a way in the future. Or uh, thinking about the possibility of a mental state now changing in the future. Good, bad, either way. And the agitation, the obsession, the preoccupation, how much of our mental energy is spent that way? I'd wager a fair amount when we're not really mindful, when the mind isn't calm. And something that I also find very interesting, this is in in my own explorations, there's times when I know, say there's a sense of a, mental formation, sankara, say a particular state of mind. And it's changing. 
and I really see it's changing, and I know it's not me. I know. I'm really aware. It's a, it's a compound experience, and it's going away isn't me. And still, there's this real strong sense of clinging, sense of self, the agitation and the suffering. And my, my rational mind, my conscious mind, will be saying, what's the clinging here? What's the sense of permanence? What is it that's the hook? This is a personality view, Sakaya Ditti. What's it coming from? I'm really clear that this mood is not me or that this thing going on in the body, the body's not me. I'm really clear about that. But still, there's something about this sadness or this fear or this happiness that keeps sucking me in, you know, kind of hooking me. And I can't quite get what is it that the clinging is to? What is it that's somehow being held, not in a thinking way, but kind of subconsciously as permanent? And again, it's something to explore if you have a similar experience. I'll just tell you what, what I see often in myself, which is it's not so much the emotion at that time or the thought or the sense of body, but the subtle feeling of I am that comes together with the clinging to that. And that is so subtle when we're not aware of it. When we're aware of it, it's like seems to be everywhere. But when we're not aware of it, it can be quite subtle, so familiar, so comfortable, that unexamined it feels very permanent, right? That's that subtle sense of self that feels so like it's always here. And so sometimes I see, in my, this is in meditation more now, it's easier for me to notice this, oh, I can when I'm busy, but easier in meditation. When, say, there's, um, I remember this one retreat where this really, this image would come up in my mind, I'd notice it. I was pretty concentrated. I'd notice it as seeing. A feeling of real grief and sadness would come with it. I'd see that right away. There wasn't really any clinging to it. There wasn't any more stories going on. And still, the consciousness would keep getting into this real, real dukkha around it and sadness. And part of my mind was sitting back watching going, what's the hook here? You know, this is nothing but dukkha. I can see it's just thinking. There's nothing else going. What is the hook? It was really a mystery. And it was really suffering, too. And then I, and I noticed that because I was so focused on the emotion, the thought, kind of the object, so to speak, I didn't really turn around and notice that subtle clinging of sense of me having that emotion, or being that emotion, or the emotion being in me, those, those uh, way that the Buddha describes personality view. And so without examination, without investigation, that sense of me, which is just arising in that moment, feels permanent. And that's really what the clinging is about, that sense of permanent me. And it's subtly pleasurable even if it's arising in conjunction with something that's really unpleasurable, at least in my experiences. So that's what keeps the clinging and the sense of permanence going.
So it's really, it's really, I think, because it can be so subtle, why the steadiness of mindfulness, moment-to-moment mindfulness in a retreat is so helpful and important. Because we can really begin to see how lack of continuity of mindfulness, lack of it, really hides impermanence. Impermanence can be quite subtle. This is a simile that was given by the monk Nandaka to some of the nuns. He says, Sister, suppose an oil lamp is burning. Its oil is impermanent and subject to change. The wick is impermanent and subject to change. The flame is impermanent and subject to change. And its radiance is impermanent and subject to change. Now, would anyone be speaking rightly who spoke thus? While this oil lamp is burning, its oil, wick, and flame are impermanent and subject to change, but its radiance is permanent, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change. They say no. You know, and he says, good, good sisters, so it is with a noble disciple who sees this as it actually is with proper wisdom. And I just like that, because it intellectually it seems obvious, but the subtlety of the radiance, you know, even, yes, that feels permanent. The subtlety of sense of self, not looked at, can feel permanent. It's so subtle we don't even know it's there. And so, really, the moment-to-moment continuity that leads to steadiness of attention is what's going to help us see this. The Buddha said again, too, Develop concentration, monks. A concentrated monk discerns things as they actually are present. And what does he discern as it actually is present? Guess. <laughs> Guess what I'm going to say. He discerns as it actually is present that the I is impermanent, inconstant. Forms are inconstant. Eye consciousness is inconstant. Eye contact is inconstant. Whatever arises in dependence on eye contact, experienced either as pleasure, as pain, or as neither pleasure nor pain, that too is inconstant. And so through, of course, all the senses. Now that, if your mind has gone to, that's why I need concentration and I don't have it, and that's why I can never understand impermanence, and that's why I might as well give up, please see that as a thought and put it aside. And notice that the continuity of mindfulness at times everyone here. It it doesn't have to be fifth jhana. We can notice contact. You can notice seeing. We notice that that's impermanent. Just bring your attention to seeing as you walk around. It's changing every second. Bring your attention to hearing at the ear door. It's constantly changing. The mind door, it's always changing. The body, the sensations of breath, the sensations in the body, Just be content with the steadiness of attention that lets us notice that. Don't try to grasp for, now I have the insight into Anicca and I am free. 
you know? Sometimes we want to overlay that. We want like some, some sense of uh, fulfillment. Now I'm getting a Nietzsche. Instead of just be content to notice moment after moment after moment. And it starts to break down the perversion of perception, you know, that sees the permanent and what is impermanent. And it happens. You don't have to make it happen. Just trust. Just trust that with the steadiness of mindfulness, it does break down. Sometimes it's more um, dramatic. Sometimes it's like getting wet in a fog, the way Suzuki Roshi talks about. You never know when you got wet, but you're really drenched. Sometimes we can use, you know, we don't really quite realize that we're making something permanent or seeing, have, have incorrect perception. But the, the actual suffering, the grief, the sadness, you know, that comes with the ending of something. Ananda's sadness, you know, when the Buddha got sick and was going to die. Rather than berating ourselves for that, I really like to take that as a, as a wake-up call. And, and actually not, not being afraid of or judging the, the poignancy the sadness, even the grief that comes along on our path. I think, for me, the fear or the dislike of the grief, you know, the loss and all, is one of, I don't want to feel the loss, so therefore I won't acknowledge that everything's changing. You know, that kind of warped thinking that keeps us in denial. But actually, if we're not afraid of that, we can be much more open to things how they, as they are. And I find Ananda's grief really quite touching and poignant. You know, it humanizes him, but it also becomes the source for looking and seeing, yes, this grief is because I'm not really seeing things how they are. I can feel the grief, and I can use it to let me pay more attention. There's also many stories where the Buddha... um, use the perception of change or impermanence as a kind of a a shocking device to wake people up. Either people who are already in grief or people who were so much in denial of impermanence that they had like a perfect little life put together and he would, you know, break them out of it. My favorite story in that way is from um, a woman, Kema, who at this point she was not a nun. She was the really, really beautiful chief consort of King Bimbisara. We had many consorts, many wives, but she was very beautiful, very vain, really enjoyed pleasure, really enjoyed beauty. And so the Buddha would come around and teach. The king was a follower of the Buddha, but Kema never wanted to go and hear him because she had heard that he, you know, kind of put down sensual pleasure and talked about renunciation. And she's basically, I'm not interested in that. So she wouldn't go hear the Buddha. Kind of like we're afraid, you know, we're afraid to hear how things are. Don't take my suffering away from me. I think I'm happy. So the king fooled her. He hired uh, like a poet wandering singer to compose beautiful poems and songs about this particular pleasure grove where he was going to have the Buddha come teach. So 
Kema heard these poems, this song about this really beautiful pleasure grove and loving pleasure, she said, well, I guess I have to go see it, anything that beautiful. So, so he tricked her. So she went, uh, and when she got there, the Buddha was teaching and to a great crowd of people. And of course, with his omniscient eye, he saw her coming, and he knew exactly where she was at. And so as soon as she came in, before even said it, she even said anything, or before she had a chance to run away, he created with his psychic powers, just for her, the image of an incredibly beautiful celestial female being, like a hundred times more beautiful than Kema. And so she would just loved beauty. She was entranced. And as she was watching this, the Buddha made this image gradually, gradually decay and get old and withered and her teeth fall out and her skin get wrinkled and, you know, get sick and die. And Kama's watching all this. And, uh, you know, he got her. She said, oh, wow. You know, if that can happen to such a beautiful being, it's going to happen to me. You know? And once he had her, of course, he gave her a little Dharma discourse on how clinging to pleasure is just putting yourself in prison. And she's an example, it's also a good feminist story, because she's an example of a rare lay person, man or female, who in hearing one Dhamma talk became completely awakened. She became an arhat right there, listening to that. So it's quite interesting, huh? Don't talk to me about this stuff. I know how it is, but just by seeing the impermanence, it cut through all her delusion. There's other stories of, and I'm, I'm just using stories of women, but it's with men too, but women who came to the Buddha in so much grief. You know the one of Kisa Gotama, who, whose baby had died, right? And she came to the Buddha, couldn't accept that her baby had died and uh, just couldn't get there. She's really in denial. She's carrying around the dead baby with her for days. And the Buddha said, okay, well, you bring me a small mustard seed from a house that has not had death, you know, and I will help your baby. So she got all excited, and you know the story. She went from house to house to house to house, and there was no house where there hadn't been death. And after a while, she got it. The mind lets go. She came back, put her baby down, was ready to hear the Buddha's teachings and practice. And one, just one last one, my favorite, because it's the way the Buddha would just so directly speak truth. And I won't tell you the whole long story, but the, the woman Patachara, who had gone through enormous suffering, right? She had left her parents both both her children, her husband died when she was giving birth to her second child. She picked up the baby and her other little baby, started home to her parents. Both her kids died in a raging flood. She got to her parents' home, and there had just been, uh, in the storm that had made the kids die, the, the roof of the house had fallen in, and both her parents and her brother had died, all this in a 24-hour period, and she went mad. And she was wandering around for months or years, naked and crazy, and people threw things at her. And finally, she came around the Buddha, and the Buddha's disciples tried to drive her away. You know, get away, they threw things, don't bother the Blessed One. And he, of course, 
told them to stop. And a man gave her a cloak, and he said, Sister, recover your presence of mind. And, and she was sane again. And then he said, you know, she told him the whole story. And this is the translation, so I don't know if it's exactly word-for-word word accurate, but it's a sense of, you know, we'd say, oh, yeah, that's really hard, you know, so much grief. He just said, don't think you've come to someone who can change that. Don't think you've come to someone who can help that. He said, in all your lives, you've cried more tears for the deaths of loved ones than there are waters in the ocean. Isn't that interesting? Is that what we tend to say, you know, to someone who comes in grief? Yeah. And it's not just this grief, you know, it's endless lifetimes of grief. And that sobered her up and, oh, okay, let me really understand this. I don't know, just somehow I love it, the sense of not, not being afraid to really face the radical, uncompromising quality of impermanence. It's moment to moment. It's always. It's every experience we have. And facing that doesn't take us into more dukkha. It doesn't take us into depression and uh, unbearable quality of life. It does. We do need to face our grief and our holding on and our sadness. But, you know, it really, we stop being sandpaper, rubbing up against experience, and it gives us the, the potential to really open into the unknown. I mean, I don't know what's really going to happen on Wednesday, July 12th at 4.30 Eastern Standard Time this summer. I really don't have a clue whether I'll really be here on the East Coast. So we make our plans and then we just open to whatever it is that might happen. And that leads, I think, to, to such a beauty and appreciation of life, of the moment, of the fragility and the beauty. And it allows us to be really present in a, in a tender, open, as a Tibetan say, ceaselessly responsive to experience rather than needing to control it. I just want to end by reading two things from two different people that I think really speaks to the, the, the power and the flexibility and the beauty, the responsive quality that's possible when we're open to impermanence. This first, I was reading, I was reading the biography of Isan Dorsey, you know, who was a, a, Zen, a Zen teacher in San Francisco who um, opened the Maitre Hospice in the late 80s for guys that were dying of AIDS. And he kind of opened the hospice. He, he didn't really know how it was going to work. He was just kind of flying by the seat of his pants. And this is a, a quotation from the, another man that he was doing it with. And they said, you know, uh, we've always dealt with whatever came to the door. We started the hospice because death came to the door, a friend of theirs who was dying of AIDS. You can deal with a complex, changing situation because you don't have to control it. You don't have to force it into an ideal pattern. You actually allow it to be whatever it is, and thus you allow yourself to adapt to what it becomes. Because this is the way we proceed. We respond to the immediacy of the situation. Therefore, we're very practical. 
That's so different from having an idea. This is how it should be. This is how we are. This is what we can do. Oh, it's just all a big flow, and we're able to be so much more responsive. And also much more courageous. So I'll just end with this. This is from um, an interview with uh, Dr. Ari Ratni, you know, the uh, founder and leader of the Sarvodaya movement in Sri Lanka. He's a Buddhist, he's a peace activist, a social activist, working with poor people. Um, Sarvodaya means the awakening of all, the awakening of the whole person. So this is from an interview with him. In 1952, a gangster was asked to kill me. I was trying to serve the students in our communities who were in need. And some people's financial or other interests were threatened, so they gave a contract killer some money to kill me. I heard about it, so I went to him and I told him, this is what I'm doing. If you want to kill me, do it now, not in my school or with my students, because then those places would have a bad name after them. You know, he said, I don't want other people's blood to be shed. At that time, and even now, I have that courage. To let others live, if necessary, you sacrifice. You're not foolish to throw away your life like that. It is a spiritual motivation, because every moment we are born, we exist and we pass away. Every moment. In our mind or body, is there anything that is permanent for two seconds? Without our knowledge, it's changing. Impermanence is a law. And when you understand that, when you practice it, you get a lot of courage. And even in death, you see life. <coughs> Obviously, the man didn't kill him. You know, he was very impressed and didn't kill him. So, the power of impermanence to free our heart and mind from suffering and to open us into a life that is so much more connected and responsive and flexible. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.